And so we have five principles and we can go through them to basically show the best companies that have been able to drive consistent growth, sustainable growth with innovation are constantly thinking in a lean mentality. And so we help provide specific examples in the book. So this is not an academic book, right? We've provided templates that people can actually use and put to use, recommendations on how to hold workshops, et cetera. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from two authors and practitioners today. Matt May and Pablo Dominguez are the authors of a book, What a Unicorn Knows, subtitled How Leading Entrepreneurs Use Lean Principles to Drive Sustainable Growth. The first bit snappy, the second bit not so much. But look, these guys work for Insight Partners, which is the largest VC and PE business in the world. So they have access to hundreds of portfolio companies. And what they've looked at is they've looked at unicorns. So what is that? It's a startup that has achieved a valuation of a billion dollars or more. And in the book, they argue that unicorns are not simply lucky, but that they have a deep understanding of the principles that drive their sustainable growth. And that's what we chat about today. We chat about these five things that they've identified doing the research and working as, as operators with Insight Partners. We look at strategic speed, where they use an analogy in the book of Formula One racing cars and this concept of drag. And if you can minimize drag, you can achieve a faster speed. So speed is important. Constant experimentation is important. So making, often I think organizations are great at innovation at the beginning, but as they get larger, they start to focus more on maybe productivity. And therefore that almost drives out innovation. So retaining a culture of constant experimentation they see as being really valuable. Accelerated value. So here they say that unicorns are good at utilizing the jobs to be done methodology. And we've had podcasts on that in the past. They use lean process. So even not even the concept of doing more with less, but actually doing less with less. So this concept of really focusing in on the things that are going to make the difference and then getting really good at that. And then something they call esprit de corps, camaraderie. So these businesses have great culture. So a fantastic conversation with two great authors and operators. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you'll get loads out of it.
Hi, I'm Matt May. I work for Insight Partners, private equity VC firm out of New York. I run something called the Lean Scale-Up Program. That's to help uh, scale-ups remove the obstacles to, to scale and growth. Co-author with my colleague here, Pablo Dominguez, of What a Unicorn Knows. Quick background, spent about a decade with Toyota, spent about a decade with a gentleman by the name of Roger Martin learning strategy. Love to mountain bike, do a little bit of road biking, mostly mountain biking, struggling tennis player, live in California. Over to you, Pablo. Thanks, Matt. Pablo Dominguez, also with Insight Partners, responsible for supporting our advisory teams, have been really focused on Salesforce effectiveness my entire career. A little bit of consulting to public companies, a startup, and now here at Insight for five years, supporting you know over 500 of our portfolio companies. Originally from Mexico, grew up in Texas, and uh, now spending time in the Northeast, where I also mountain bike like Matt, and uh, try to enjoy smoking meat when I can. Or a smoker, like Matt, like, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing the marijuana, he's doing the meat. Yeah. Brilliant. Fantastic book, guys. Why why did you feel compelled to put in the hard yards to get this out? I'll start. I am a previous author, so this is my sixth book, and I actually thought I'd never write another book because I didn't have anything to say. But Pablo and I have been working together well over a decade, and the past five years focused on uh, high-tech software scale-ups. The ability to apply this lean-thinking approach to business was unique, and I credit Pablo for being the innovator and pointing it toward the go-to-market part of the world, which I was not all that familiar with, honestly. And it, it has worked so well, and we have such measurable results that it felt time to synthesize what we have been doing into a set of basic guiding principles that if applied the right way, the results are replicable. So it was worth getting it out and scaling up our own processes and principles. Don't you just mean you've given the secret sauce to all of your competitors there? Well, you know what? I come from a Toyota background. And one of the questions I'm always asked, because my first book was about Toyota and my experience there, people always ask me, didn't Toyota get pissed off at you for, for writing that book. I'm like, no, you can walk into any Toyota factory you want. They'll give you a tour. They will show you all, everything, how they do everything in a factory and any, any kind of operation. And the reason they'll do that is because by the time you take that, adopt it as a best practice or standardize it, there are a million ideas down the road. Yeah. And I know we were talking about uh, Elon Musk earlier before we, got, we actually started the podcast, right? I'm a proud owner of an electric vehicle. I think Elon gave away the blueprints for the Tesla vehicles over a decade ago and look how far behind everybody is. So I'm not sure, I think how we engage with our companies and the best practices we've accumulated doing this over a hundred times is what makes it different. But again, to Matt's point, most of Lean has been applied to product, to manufacturing, and no one's really started applying it holistically to go to market. And so we're actually happy to share that with the rest of uh, the community because so much more can be gained with everybody optimizing go-to-market teams. Fab. So for those people who haven't read the book yet, how does this apply? What, what is lean scale up and what does it mean to apply this to go to market? And then we can dive, probably dive into some examples. Pablo, take it away. Yeah. So, so, so the book is called What a Unicorn Knows. And, and one thing we want to clarify is the principles that we've put together apply to any size company, right? Typically larger companies. And again, Matt and I worked together at a public company before years ago. Sometimes innovation is lost, right? You get stuck in the cog of the machine, but the best public companies have built innovation centers or applied some of these lean principles to leapfrog their competitors. So this is not just for startups. It's not just for scale-ups. It's for any company looking to sort of drive that innovation with lean principles. And so 
We picked scale as sort of the moniker. And so we have five principles and we can go through them to basically show the best companies that have, you know, been able to drive consistent growth, sustainable growth um, with innovation are constantly thinking in a lean mentality. And so we help provide specific examples in the book. So this is not an academic book, right? We've provided templates that people can actually use and put to use. Um, recommendations on how to hold workshops, et cetera. So regardless of the size of your team or organization, very applicable actually to, to many companies, whether you're a CEO or a CXO looking to, to drive additional growth. Yeah. And you know, to, to back up that point, it's kind of interesting. The company we work for, Insight Partners, has two sides to the house. One's the investment side, one is the advisory side. But what makes it unique is that we're all ex-operators. We're, we're all field personnel. So it's not book learned. We've always had these roles, whether it's a, you know a team lead, a facilitator, what have you. And so we come at it from a very practical standpoint. So there's nothing scholarly in this book at all. The, the fact that there is even kind of a, a model of, of visual model. If you look at it in the book, it looks like it was drawn on the back of a napkin because it was, because we're not scholars. We don't have all that fancy um, uh, knowledge up top. So to answer your question, lean is often misconstrued. So it's really the absence of waste. And you hear a lot right now about do more with less. And it's really not that as much as do less to achieve more which is a slight nuance on it. But if I were to substitute the word more with work, no one would sign up for lean. Like do, you know, work more with less. Nobody, nobody would want to, you know, do that. Nobody's going to lean in, pardon the pun, on that. So it's really about taking stuff away, doing less so that you can, you know, kind of almost exponentially improve your impact. We do some, I do work occasionally with clients and we, we look at what's happening to their revenue and you go, okay, you're winning larger clients. That's good. Let's have a look at the margin as you win those larger clients. Oh, that's going down. And they go, no, but that's okay. And you go, no, that's not okay. Because that means as you get bigger, your margin's going to go down. And if you just draw those graphs out, ultimately you end up a large unprofitable business, which is not really a great place to be. And it, it's just happening. It's just happening under the covers and they just aren't really aware of that. A lot of that cover what happened during kind of COVID where this rising tide lifted all the boats, right? And it was, it was growth at any cost. And we will worry about that stuff later. And now that, you know, resources have become a little bit more limited, certainly more finite, um, so to speak, um, that becomes more important. And you, I mean, at the beginning, you guys said, look, we're VCPE. So where do you sit? Are you late stage VC and then PE? What sort of size checks are you writing in the... Yeah, so so we have... Um, Insight's been around over 27, 28 years. We're based in New York. We're a global firm with investments all over the world, primarily in B2B software, right? So we're not doing flying cars and that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's B2B software with a little mix of B2B to C recurring revenue. We don't do seed or pre-seed, um, but we do everything from Series A to, to buyouts, right? So as long as it's software and it's, and it's typically growth companies. But yeah, we've got you know the best investors in my mind uh, on the software side. And to Matt's point, we're part of the advisory side that then you know the investors find the best companies um, and the best leaders. And once they agree to take Insights money and we want to invest in them, the purpose of the advisory teams is really to help those companies scale, right? From when you join the Insight portfolio until you exit, um, we're here to help you on that journey, whether it's hiring people, Right. We have a very powerful talent team to helping with marketing or product or engineering, uh, sales, post sales, you know, even exit prep or if, you, if there's M&A, very powerful team to basically help you drive that sustainable growth. Fab. Uh, well, look, let's dive in. What are the five things that you found that were 
across the hundred companies that you in the portfolio that you looked at that have shown, you know, do these five things can't fail. Uh, well, I wouldn't say can't fail, but we it certainly uh, increase your uh, odds of winning. And so we, we kind of backed into it by looking at the things that get in the way of growth and scale um, and kind of the, the physical forces, if you will, or at least metaphorically physical forces of drag, of friction, of inertia, and of waste. And we kind of liken these, you know, these scale-up companies, high-growth, rapidly growing, fast-moving companies to a Formula One car, which faces the exact same forces. If you're a fan of Formula One, you know that there's a DRS system on every every car. It'll wing in the back, and there are certain drag reduction uh, zones where you can overtake your competitor, you know, around the track. And so tackling those four forces, we assigned uh, kind of a principled approach to each. So the first is, and, and, and as Pablo said, the, the acronym is SCALE. The first is strategic speed, and that tackles, you know, the, the restraining force of drag. And it's all about making strategic decisions um, more swiftly and getting alignment in your organization so that you're very much in the draft of those at the head of the company. You can make quicker decisions, make quicker market moves up, down, sideways. Um, so that's the S. The C is constant experimentation. As Pablo mentioned, innovation often wanes when you take your eye off the, the very ball that brought you to the, the party in the first place, which is you're in the garage, you got a great idea, everything is quick test, MVP this, MVP that, and then all of a sudden you find your, your first product, you got your product market fit, and you begin to scale, and all of a sudden you start riding that, that cash cow, and you forget about that process that brought that first product, and gosh, if you're not careful, you become a one-trick pony. I'll probably take a couple of the next one. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Is there a sense of what size? I certainly... My anecdotal feeling is at about 100 employees, people are starting to think about efficiency and that the efficiency things that they put in place sort of drive out the innovation because it's now all about predictability, ROI, which is, you know, the sort of opposite of innovation. If we knew it was going to work, it would have an ROI. Innovation, innovation sort of seems as though it's like, we don't know it's going to work. It's a test. And people start focusing on, so did you get a sense when you looked at it, is it about 100 or is that not as clear cut as that for you? There's a little bit of science around that 100 number and Dunbar's number, which is 150. So if you look at some of the more innovative uh, companies out there, Gore, for example, Gore Associates, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with them. They'll, as soon as a particular team or unit gets to 150, they'll split them off, right? Because over that number, the communication breaks down. There's so many layers, there's programs, and all of a sudden this program mentality and this budget thing happens, and I got to fit my budget or I lose it. So I'm selling a program, and, and, and the whole approach becomes less innovative and more internal selling and selling up. So there is some, I don't know that we have a lot of science, Paulo, to uh, the actual number, but there's certain inflection points. I think you're right. Yeah, no, I, I I agree, and I think what we've seen is because I saw this in you know in a public company that had over sixty thousand employees. You've got to drive innovation through very strategic teams because again, you know, once you hit a certain inflection point, you're right. You you start to focus more on efficiency, process, right, and people lose sort of what got them there. And so leadership is key, right? Are you building a culture of constant experimentation and failure is okay, or have you pivoted to like, hey, we can't afford to fail and now we're not going to take risks, right? So it's a fine balance of how much risk can you take? Where do you take the risk? Where where are you willing to experiment or does everybody experiment? Because not everybody you hire as you start to scale also has that same mentality, right? So 
How are you onboarding and training people to think the way you wanted to run the company? You'll always lose that as you scale. What we've seen with the winners is the CEOs, the executive team have maintained that culture and or incubated it, right? Here's our innovation team. They're, they're going to focus on incubation. Look at what Google does, right? They allocate 10% of people's time every week to just thinking time and focus on focusing on innovation, not your job, right? So they don't lose that from a culture perspective. It's interesting because I, I see a number of PE-backed businesses that I've worked with, and actually they're almost the sort of risk aversion in PE also dry, can drive out innovation in some of their portfolio businesses. Concentrate on profitability. Exactly. And you can, and you can still be focused on, again, the two North Stars for a company, right? Or top line and bottom line, right? And I think you can still be focused on profitability and be innovative back to the first letter scale, right? Strategic speed. It's not just about speed, right? It's if you think about strategy and the core of strategy, the essence of strategy is choosing what not to do. That's what Michael Porter said, right? And people sometimes think it's different. Like, so let's think about the current environment we're in. How many companies are really thinking, well, hey, maybe I shouldn't be rolling out five products. Maybe I shouldn't try and go into every single market in EMEA or APAC or go into the US, right? Let me try and be more targeted and focused we think that more, more, more will drive growth versus being much more focused, right? Netflix has a principle called the Canada principle. We talk about this in the book where they had an opportunity early on to go into Canada, right? And it was clear, huge market next to the US. It can't be that hard. But they very strategically said, no, this is going to redeploy resources because there's language changes, right? Like there is French in Canada. It's not just English. They'd have to change the product. And they stayed and focused on the U.S. And they actually grew more quickly by focusing on the U.S. versus going into a net new market, which you go, there's no way that's possible, right? So again, back to Matt's point, it's all about making the right choices versus trying to, I think companies spread themselves too thin by not being strategic and go, we're going to do you know, SMB, mid-market, enterprise, international. We're going to you know, we're gonna leverage channel partners and that just dilutes the focus versus like, what is your core and what can you actually do very well? Well, I will say, you know, you say those six things and you go, does that business really have six talented people who have nothing else to do? Where that's where the strategy completely falls over. Cause it's like, we're going to do these six things and we don't have the six people or we do, they're good, but they're actually got full-time jobs already. That's where, you know, well, let's do more with less. Matt said that before, we hear that a lot, right? Do more with less versus lean for us is, you know, do less to achieve more. And that seems counterintuitive, but we've seen it work. And obviously Netflix saw it work, right? They were very focused. Well, I mean, back before I did a, a, a European expansion a few years ago, I remember talking to the guys at Dell and they had gone into, a few years ago, the guy I was talking to said, look, we went into five European countries. A year later, we were out of all five, right? And he said, so then we went, okay, what did we learn? We went back into one, and after a year, we were number one in that country. Whereas after a year, we were like 12th in five countries. And all we created was noise and cost. You know, we hadn't done anything successfully. And also he said, we also made the mistake of not having somebody senior enough's head on the block, right? And so then when they did it the second time, it was like, we had the right guy. You know, if it didn't work, he was toast. So that sort of senior sponsorship was important as well. We then picked one country and we went into the Netherlands and that worked really well. Yeah, no, that's perfect, right? Because like when we talk about constant experimentation, this is part of it, right? Companies think, well, I'll pick a US company going into Europe, right? I have to pick five countries, right? Because they're all, they all have high TAM, our competitors are there, et cetera. 
No, experiment. Land in the UK first or France, wherever you think you have the highest likelihood. Test it out. Can, can you buy it, right? Prove it out and then go do something, right? But people think, oh, especially Americans, right? People think, oh, it's Europe. It's just all the same. And they don't realize there's work councils and different languages at times. You're like, oh, everybody speaks English. Like, well, I remember having this conversation with my colleagues and I'm like, okay, I think we should put the, the infrastructure in Portsmouth. We're on this call and the guy says, well, what about Dublin? I said, okay, so it's in a different country, over the sea, they have a different currency. But other than that, you probably didn't do geography at school. So, you know, let's move on from you guys in the, you guys over there picking where we put this infrastructure. I think that's the, uh, you know, local knowledge can be really impactful. Um, so what's, uh, what's A? Accelerated value. So most of all our work is, is with B2B companies, software, and this notion of time to value is paramount to reducing, and they're all subscription businesses, right? So that's what SaaS is. Time to value is, is paramount. And um, what gets in the way of allowing a customer to really truly realize value quickly has a lot to do with not understanding the job they're trying to get done with whatever tool or solution it is that you're selling. So accelerating value is, is shrinking that time to value, shrinking time to revenue by taking a look at what Clayton Christensen call a job to be done. You know, it's irrespective of whatever it is you're selling, there is a deeper job that someone is trying to get done and a desired outcome. And if we fail to align and understand what those desired outcomes are, um, we're going to experience churn, we're going to experience desertion, all the things that uh, could make a business that we invest in fail. So that is the A. Okay. As you were talking, I was thinking, get the software spreads more deeply in the organization. If we can get time to value, there's probably something that says they're not seeing it quickly. They'll churn. You know, if it's an annual contract, they're just not going to renew because they had it for three months. We think we've got the revenue, but actually, if we look at the usage patterns, nobody used it. It's just not going to, we're not going to get year two. Well, and it's also, did we oversell something and to the wrong people to when it's coming up for renewal, people are questioning like, why are we using this? Right? So you clearly didn't sell me on value because if your product, people should, people should not be going, ah, should we keep this? They they should say, we can't live without this, right? I can't do my job without this. And so that's a Matt's point. Do you really understand the problem the customer's trying to solve? Do you understand your pain points? And does your solution solve that, right? And if it does, you're in a great position, right? Uh, high LTV, um, great financials. But if not, that's where we're seeing, you know, products churn or downsell, right? I was interested in buying some MarTech recently. And the sales guy I was talking to said, I can't sell it to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we've got 97% uh, renewal rate and we're heading towards an IPO and you don't have the infrastructure to get the value out of our product and therefore I can't sell it to you. I thought that was really ballsy, but that's a great example of what you're saying. It's like, be really clear who who your core customer is. Don't let the sales rep sell something to somebody that they're not going to get value from because they're just going to hate you. Yeah, and that, by the way, that's impressive. The best reps and the best managers will walk away from deals they know are not right for the customer, but also for themselves, right? Versus like, oh, we'll deal with them later, right? Like the last thing you want is a customer writing, a, you know, you buy this MarTech and then you're, you tell your friends like, yeah, this was useless, but well, no, maybe you weren't ready for it, right? So uh, great call out there. Uh, what's the um, L? Yeah, so lean is all about process, right? Lean process. I love this one. And this is sort of where Matt and I started a, over a decade ago, applying lean at GTM. Because if you think about go to market, you go from awareness of a customer learning about your product to they renew, 
right? Or they buy more stuff. And, and all in there, there is a marketing process. There is a sales process. There's a post-sales process implementation. There's handoffs, finances involved, legals involved. Those processes are riddled. Matt said it before with waste, like literally riddled with waste. We've done this, I don't know, Matt, over 75, close to 100 times. And I will bet my salary on this and Matt's can guarantee, because it's always happened. It's always happened, Dominic. So can guarantee a minimum of 20% improvement in the quote to cash process simply by removing waste, not spending a dime on people, not spending a dime on technology. Once you add tech, it improves, but minimum 20% guaranteed. Is that 20% in any sort of direction? Because you could be generating, your CAC Delphi T ratio could be better. The time to close could be better. Is it just at, in any, in some direction, you'll find 20%? Correct. It could be conversion rates, handoffs, legal takes 12 weeks to approve for no reason. You name it. And we set those targets high up front. Right. So in any direction. So this always begins with what's the bogey, right? What is what is it? The gap? What's the gap, Mr. Mrs. Manager or senior executive that you want to close? And then then we'll have a working team, cross-functional team, address those goals, map out the process. Since they're the ones that identify the problem and test out a solution, there's kind of built-in buy-in and run as an experiment. So it's kind of uh, a a no-brainer, so to speak. But yeah, without fail, at least 20%. And going in, we won't, we will not take a project where the goal is something like five or 10% improvement because you can game the system when they're that low, right? You can, you can work longer, stay, you know, work harder, stay longer, figure out workarounds to, to get that lift. Cause they're always, there's that much slack in, in whatever process you're looking at. So we set it higher. So you have to think differently and subtractively at the same time. What are your best waste basket moments where you found something and it's like, people always feel a little bit silly from when you point it out from the outside because they're like, yes, you're right. Like, how didn't we see that? Well, what's funny is we don't point it out. They point it out. Ah, okay. Because they, they already they already know it. It's just somehow the wrong person's saying it and nobody's taking action. Well, yeah, that's the, the beautiful thing about how we run the workshops, right? And again, that's the, the power of the book is we're giving you the frameworks is when you solve these issues, you typically solve them in a silo, right? Our implementation takes too long or the handoff between sales and post-sales is ineffective. So what do you do? All right, let's talk to the salespeople why. What we do is we bring salespeople together, post-sales, finance, legal, marketing, uh, customer success together to say, hey, map out the process. Like, and, and what actually happens? And when they map it out, they start to go, wait, why do you do that after I give it to you? I, I, I don't need you to do that. I don't know. Like when I started, that was in my training. Like someone said to do that. And they go, well, that takes a week. We don't need to do that, right? And, and you just keep going and they go, holy cow, like why are we doing these things, right? And then they go from there and you say, okay, now that you saw what you do, for, and you, you, none of you clearly know why you're doing these things, what should the ideal process be? And that's where the removal comes from. They go, don't need this, don't need this, don't do this. And these are all people that do the jobs, right? That's where that's where Matt's awesome at doing this is you don't you don't have the executives, right? You can't have executives in here because they don't know. They're up here at, you know, in La La Land. These are people on the ground going, This is the job I do. Let me tell you why it's difficult, not you, Mr. or Mrs. Manager. Do you know I used to run a CRM consultancy business and we did a lot of work like that. The thing that terrifies me the most is I see clients all the time doing 
some sort of tech implementation. And they don't do that workshop that you're describing first. What they do is they take their shitty process and they hard code it in to make it impossible to change later. And it's like, you couldn't take the 10 weeks out if you wanted to, because then you'd have to spend another, you know, $200,000 on consultancy fees just to rewrite the code. Yeah. And that's, that's actually where we sometimes engage, right? People say, hey, we're implementing a CLM or a CPQ solution. And we're like, and you go, help, before you do that, let's help you before you waste all of that money. Exactly. Don't take shitty process and automate shitty process. And now it looks pretty in a CPQ, but it's you know not suboptimal. So that's always a good entry before you're going to implement those tools. Like, is your process optimal? And nine times out of 10, it's not. And what I like is that you're saying, look, it doesn't take the executive team. You just go and get the people on the front line and, and actually so often what you're doing is you're giving them an opportunity to scratch an itch. You know, many times people have got like 37 stupid rules. You know, I was with a client recently and I said, okay, we've got the CEO here. I need somebody to tell me something that he needs to fix. And somebody said, oh, we've hard coded in that the minimum time that we can bill for is a day. And we've got all this stuff that takes less than a day and we can't close the project off and bill the client. And you go, well, there was obviously a meeting and in that meeting, the people who did that thought that made sense. So like it's in. And so the CEO said, well, that's ridiculous. Let's, what does it need to be? And they went hours. He went, okay, let's move it from days to hours. Turns to the senior guy from tech team, make that happen. They're like, ah, oh, they were cheering. Cause they're like, they were so frustrated that, you know, and you're right in your ivory tower, you, you very often don't. You don't have that visibility. And we, we tend to think that people in positions of power whether it's the COO, right? CEO, the head of sales, marketing, HR, it doesn't really matter who, that they have all this knowledge and they have the answers because they've got the experience. And that's not true, right? Like the people that know what needs to get done are the people doing the jobs. And, you know, Matt, I think that was the Toyota culture, right? Like they wanted people that were doing the tasks to, you know, stop the line or, or come back with thoughts on like how to do things better. I mean, it goes back to constant experimentation. And we talked about experimentation earlier. When we finished this workshop, those people present then to the executive team and say, hey, we can take 20% out or 25% or 30% out. Great, go test it. Before we go change the entire company, do it for two, three months. Let's see if it works. Guess what? It always works, right? Because they're, the, they're changing their jobs. Then you roll it out to the whole company and you see huge gains, right? We had one company, 66% improvement in time to value. Like tremendous, like absolutely awesome. Completely transformed their company. They made it to unicorn status because of that. So that makes us super, like super, super excited when we work with those types of companies. What's the last one? What's E? That's esprit de corps. In order to make the first four principles work well, you need leaders to find the right balance, right? You can have a perfect recipe. You can watch a cooking show, try and do the same thing that Emerald does and it doesn't work. You got the same equipment, everything, but you need to find the right balance for your culture. So a good leader has kind of two qualities. They act as the glue and the grease. And we didn't come up with that term, came from um, some work that I did in the past with Jet Propulsion Laboratory leader who was in charge of the Mars Pathfinder project. That was his term for it. But it's the notion of, you know, you're familiar with product market fit. This is about people culture fit. So that's, you know, it's free decor and Pablo has a, has a unique uh, perspective on this, but really it's, it's you know, do, do the individual values meet the company values, the team values? And is there's kind of a force multiplier that brings all that together in a way that is, you know, one plus one equals three or four or five. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And something people ask us is like, well, hey, which one of these is the most important, right? Or which one, is there an order I go into it? And sort of why we chose what a unicorn knows is 
what a unicorn knows that it, is that it there is no order, right? Just depending on what you need to focus on, what is most critical for you, you're choosing where you need to focus, right? Um, you might be using all five of them, but I love Esprit de Corps because it is the glue that sort of holds everything together. Having worked in various companies, like those that have the strongest leaders, build the strongest culture, drive these values, allow people. I mean, think about what we just talked about. Like you're relinquishing and lean the ability for a very junior person to come to an idea which might transform the company, right? How many companies actually do that? Or do they go, nope, got to be an SVP or a C-level to make all the decisions. Like we're the smartest people, right? It takes a lot to trust your people and to build that culture. So culture and leadership is actually absolutely very critical. Look, I remember when I was uh, doing my MBA, I was at Glaxo, came up with some interesting multiple multivariate analysis of way in which we could change the sales model. And so I got very excited because it it showed that my time was being wasted, I thought. So I went to my boss and he said, I don't understand what you said, but we don't pay you to think like that. There are smarter people than you in head office. That's their job. Please just go back and do what you were told to do. So of course, I completely ignored him, did what I thought was the right thing to do. And we ended up being team of the year, worked worked, worked less hard and, and got more prescriptions written for our for our products. And it's just, uh, but you're right. It's like, you know, it stifles, it completely stifles people if zero innovation. As you think about the examples in the book, like that one where you had sort of 60% improvement in uh, go to market, like what else, what are some of the other just astonishing successes that you've had? Matt, what about like on strategy? I think where people, where companies fall down on strategy is, again, I think ego kills a lot of things, right? Like we know everything. We don't need help. But when you have leadership that says, hey, let's let's bring the leadership team in, like, are we heading in the right direction? Do we need to change course to win? I think being open to change, I think that where we've had more success in strategies, we have CEOs that really want help from as many people and they don't pretend that they know everything. I think when you've got leaders who think like, I'm the only person who can decide the direction of the company because I'm the CEO, that's expected of me. That's where I've seen at least Matt transform things from a strategy perspective. Do you have CEOs in the portfolio then who are more or less receptive to your offers of help? Or is it compulsory that they allow you to help them? No, I, I think it's not compulsory, right? I think the way that Insight engages is very collaborative. And I honestly say 95% of the time people want help, right? Because we offer this, right? When they take Insight money, they know it's part of the value prop. And like, we're here to help. If you're smart, no matter how smart you are, it doesn't, mean, doesn't matter if you've been a multi-time CEO or CRO or CMO, it's a free resource, right? To help you and your team get better. But there's always people who think, you know, I don't need that. If I ask for help, what are they going to think? Honestly, if they don't ask for help, what are they going to think, right? So I don't know why you wouldn't, but I, th I think we've been very lucky at Insight where we've built a culture. The CEOs know that where the majority, the highest majority are always asking for input. Matt, you were, Pablo was setting you up there to talk about strategy. <laughs> uh, I am a... Not a fan of the traditional management consulting approach, and I'm so happy to be at a place that kind of agrees with that. So we work from the inside out. So if you think about like the, the granddaddy consulting firms of, of the world, what they'll do is they'll charge a whole bunch of money and they'll spend time with each of whoever, you know, they need to interview and they'll pluck out the best ideas, feed them back in a, in a recommendation. And all that takes a very, very long period of time and a lot of money. What we can do in a day and the reason why this works so well is because I am the dumbest guy in the room. Uh, my job is simply to pull out the best thinking of those around the table or you know, around the maps that we use 
And it never fails. You talk about success stories that there is an aha moment in the room where simply because people have gotten together in a way that they usually don't because of the silos that, that Pablo mentioned, and they're discussing strategic challenges and the options for resolving those. It may not happen in the room, but down the line, stuff that would take months and potentially never actually happen in the old consulting model where someone you know gives you some recommendations, it happens and it happens very, very quickly in a fraction of the time and a fraction of the cost. And it's because they have such emotional and intellectual investment in the choices that they've made, the strategy that they've crafted, guaranteed to have that, that buy-in. And it's just a matter of, of deploying it to the rest of the company. So 100% of the time, it, there's, there's this aha moment where they're scratching their head saying something like, or a slap to the forehead. It's like, why are we doing that? Or why haven't we know? Oh my gosh. And if it doesn't happen in the workshop, it happens downstream in, in follow-up sessions. So almost every time it's, it's a success story, depending on how you define success. So I'm not worried about the most brilliant strategy. I'm worried about the, the synergy and the esprit de corps that happens because out of that comes good strategy, comes good culture, comes good experimentation. I, I love, I love that because you, you said, look, I'm the dumbest person in the room, which is obviously not true, but that's totally counter intuitive to the large management consultancies where they are compelled to prove always that they are the smartest people in the room because that's sort of why you've hired them and also if they don't show up with a few people like they don't get to charge the big bucks so it's a big complicated process with lots of people involved very different do your is it are you a free service to the portfolio or yeah no so for for insight it is part of just being part of insight so we do not yeah so it's a little different model than some other companies but that also allows us to you know engage in a very collaborative way versus oh if i if i call matt or if i call you know somebody else like what's what's going to happen they're going to ding me with a management fee yeah no exactly it's it, it, it's um we want them to feel like we're an extension of the team obviously we're holding them accountable and pushing them right to, to top line and bottom line goals but it, it does build a much more collaborative environment complete pull complete but we're not pushing anything it's a complete pull pull system because it wouldn't be lean if you had more resources than you had demand so you have just enough resources to meet the demand hence why it can you're not having to push because it's not like you've got people sitting around doing nothing. Correct. And we, and we practice what we preach. I mean, the, the, the advisory side of the house has grown enormously over the, the last few years. And, and Pablo's superpower really is putting together the teams, the, you know, kind of the SEAL team squads, if you will, that fits the advisory talent with the, the portfolio company need and finding just the right people to, to do that. That's, uh, I hope I don't embarrass him, but that's his, that is free to core is his superpower. We just got back from, a, a you know, across company across, uh, cause we're growing, right? So we had to, you know, make sure that the esprit de corps is in place. And we just spent some time, quality time together about, you know, three and a half days uh, a couple of weeks ago to do that very thing. Very good. Yeah. To your point about scaling with lean, like we try to scale where there's demand, right? We, we, we provide supply where there's demand versus I think a lot of teams, you know, even in companies try to add supply before there is demand to try and plan ahead. But if you've got visibility into demand, you can sort of keep up. And that's sort of been how we've tried to scale the organization over the last couple of years to keep up with, you know, portfolio growth and and what the people need to actually continue to scale effectively. Fab. Guys, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? 
Uh, in general, you know, I mentioned that I, I spend a good bit of time with Toyota and going into that engagement, it's been, you know, 20 plus years ago, I thought I pretty much knew a lot about problem solving and how to solve problems. and was pretty good at it. And I realized in working there that I knew nothing about how to do it or how to engage people around problem solving and the lens through which you need to look at problems. And so in the middle of this eight, nine year engagement, I had this kind of pivotal moment where I had my own slap to the forehead thing. I'm looking at the world the wrong way. It's not what more I can do or what I can add to the equation. It's what do I need to take away? And that's the entire approach of, of lean is subtraction, right? What do you, what can you remove to do better? And that was, that's, I wish I had known that for the first 15 years of, of my career, because I would have had much greater impact. So, and it's guided everything that I've written, everything I've done. It, it's it's the reason that Pablo and I have been working together this long, and why it's worked so well. For me, it's a uh, hire slow, fire fast. I think as as managers, you learn that people tell you that, but like you have to experience it. And even now, right? We coach a lot on if you don't have the right team, you got to make changes because the pain is going to be worse if you're not upgrading or top leveling your people. But I wish I would have adhered to that earlier in my career. Okay. And other than what Unicorn knows, what else should people, what else do you recommend? What do you, what do you like? What inspired you ahead of writing the book? Matt, feel free to throw some of your other books in. <laughs> What else should people be reading? We were chatting about this earlier. Don't laugh at me for, for saying this, but I actually bought Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, which is actually a kind of a motivate. I guess he's, he's on his third career, fourth career as kind of a motivational guru now, but it's actually some good practical stuff in it that I actually haven't seen before in the typical fodder around, you know, productivity and professionalism and dedication, blah, blah, blah. So what's it called? I'm not telling <laughs> <laughs> We'll pick it up in the show notes. Fab. I don't want to sell it. Yeah, I just finished reading, um, I think it came out last year, Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, which is, again, I tend to read a lot of business books and business magazines. So sometimes it's nice to read things about life experiences that you can also apply to business, but um, phenomenal book. And I think he just released a, a book, a children's book called Just Because which also highly recommend for those of you that have kids, but there's a lot of phenomenal parables of adults as well. Like it's designed for kids, but phenomenal. I don't know what this guy's doing. He said, I was listening to a podcast and he was sleeping and he had an idea and just started jotting down just because this, just because this. And so he wrote a children's book, but he's very, um, you know, again, phenomenal actor, but very and great philanthropist, but phenomenal way of thinking about life and uh, the journey, the human journey, et cetera. So highly recommend those two books. Fab. Well, guys, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time and giving the audience a run through the book. Thoroughly recommend the book. Excellent read. Well done. Guys, thanks very much for your time. Been brilliant chatting to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.